So I'm gonna grow nine times as fast instead of three times as fast. I like nine better than three. Does it take more effort and resources to do it? Absolutely. Then I'm gonna basically say, well, if I can only do one, then which one is the easiest and most efficient and adds the most potential future value? And then that's what I'm gonna do. Welcome back to the Wild Goose Chase, where we help you to grow your business, build wealth, and live a life by design. And if you want to do just that, if you want to grow your business exponentially, create more freedom, all of that kind of stuff, then this is the episode for you. And um, today I got to talk with Roland Frazier. Roland Frazier is a business growth expert. He's participated in uh, over a thousand uh, acquisitions and exits. He's got a portfolio of companies, uh, over a hundred companies, I think it is, uh, that are doing. Some of those companies are doing over like four billion in sales. Like it's it's pretty significant portfolio. So he's got a very unique perspective on growth. One of the things I love about Roland is his ability to continuously think bigger. Uh, he is a master at that, and he's a master at managing his mindset in a way that develops continuous opportunity and potentiality. He's also an expert in mergers and acquisitions, which is one of the areas that he's really passionate about, particularly as it relates to business growth. And in today's conversation, we talk about things like that, such as how to use acquisitions for exponential growth, how to get out of your own way and overcome limiting beliefs, and how to think bigger and achieve more in all areas of life. It's a super fun conversation. We covered a lot more than that too. Um, he gave me a lot of personal advice as well around how to manage this kind of this kind of uh, these kind of approaches in my own businesses. So super valuable to me, and I think it's going to be super valuable to you as well. But before we get into it, make sure you subscribe. If you're on YouTube, make sure you uh, hit the bell, do all that kind of stuff, hit the subscribe button. Whatever platform you're on, you're on, look around you, see if there is a way that you can engage by clicking a button, and just do that. That's the only thing I ask. Um, we don't have any, you know, big sales pitches or anything like that on this uh, show. I just want to grow a content channel that provides a tremendous amount of transformational value. And the only thing that I ask for in return is that you share, you subscribe, and you participate in that growth. It gives me fuel. It gives all of the platforms fuel to know that we're doing the good, good, doing a good thing too, and it helps us to get better guests, which is um, something that is very important to me because I want to be able to li- deliver more value to you. So that being said, click a button, subscribe, do all that kind of stuff. And without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it, and I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Wild Goose Chase. Joining me on today's show is Roland Frazier. Roland, how are you today? I'm fantastic, Goose. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute joy and a pleasure. Anytime I get to spend any time with you is a, is a gift. You are one of the few people that I have that every single person that talks about you talks about you positively and with a tremendous amount of gratitude. It, it's quite unique, I think, in this space. But I am lucky enough to know who you are. But for those of you, who, for those of the people who are watching this or listening to this who don't know, who are you, and why should anyone care? Yeah, well, first, thank you. That's awesome. I, I love hearing that. The who who I am is uh, somebody that's been doing business for over forty years. Uh, I uh, started out in real estate, worked my way into uh, building developments and um, and raising money for doing that kind of stuff. Uh, got introduced to some investment bankers got taken under one of those folks wing, learned how to do leverage buyouts back in the eighties when they were very popular. Um, kind of seems like it was very similar to the no money out of pocket real estate stuff. And then just kind of moved forward with business acquisitions and growing businesses and selling businesses and, uh, practiced law for a while, uh, got a degree in accounting along the way and, um, just, uh, kind of, uh, have, a passion for all things business that uh, that I have to do podcasts like this so that I don't drive my wife crazy talking about business at home. <laughs> well, I am glad that I can be a conduit uh, for this and uh, and to keep your wife a little bit happier and bring more um, more solace to the to the home. What it, I'd like to start with a with a question that may set us up for where we can go next. I think I'd like to know what is one contrarian belief that you hold to be true? What's something that you believe that everybody else that you think goes against the grain? Talk to me about that. I have quite a few, but probably the biggest one is that uh, that you don't need any large pool of cash or any cash at all um, or any connections or personal credit to assemble a portfolio of companies that, um, that rivals what a lot of smaller private equity firms would assemble. Okay awesome why would anyone even want to do that why would why is it why would anyone want to assemble a portfolio of companies i think that's a good i think it's a good contrarian belief but like let's tackle the let's tackle the root 
Sure. Well, I think if if we think about what what I hear most people talk about kind of in terms of building wealth is how can I create passive income? And um, and a lot of people, uh, number one, don't understand what passive income really is. Passive income generally only exists with interests and dividends. It's not flipping houses or, or even buying businesses for that matter. It is like if you're operating, then it's not passive. It needs to be something that whether you're involved or doing anything or not, you get paid. And so the way that a lot of us go about that is, uh, well, rents would be included in that. But unfortunately, the way most people do rents is they act as the property manager. And so it's not necessarily passive then either. So I guess I'll include rents with a uh, with a disclaimer that it needs to be through a property management company where you're not actively doing it. Um, so the way that people do that typically is they either buy real estate and hire a leasing company to do that for them, or they create some sort of intellectual property or invent something that they can license and receive royalties back, or uh, they invest in companies in the stock market usually. And so the challenge I have with, uh, well, I'm, I'm a fan of real estate, um, but I don't find it nearly as exciting and interesting as companies, even though real estate can be wonderful and, and has been very good to me over the years as an investment. Uh, but I really like acquiring companies. And so the people that invest in the stock market are effectively acquiring small slices of companies in the form of the shares that they buy that represent an ownership interest. And um, and then they hope that those will go up, but they're, they really don't get to impact those companies at all. They don't get to, uh, their interest is very, very small. The management is very sophisticated and very distant and separated from the average shareholder. So I like the idea of acquiring smaller businesses that are in areas that I find interesting where I can actually have a meaningful impact on the company and uh, and participate in it. But ultimately, if I were to do nothing, the interest would be passive. And so uh, acquiring those companies without having to invest cash is one of my favorite games. And it's not yet, at least I haven't figured out how to do that in the stock market. If somebody knows how, I definitely am interested. But um, but I have figured out how to do it with smaller companies. And so I, I really find it interesting. I like the game of how can we get into these companies with little or no money out of pocket. And then we have this collection of companies to answer your question of why would anybody want that? Uh, you ultimately end up with a, co a collection of companies that would be similar to your collection of stock investments or your collection of rental properties. And those companies make profits and you receive dividends from those companies on a regular basis. And you don't have to work for that because they are uh, truly passive income. That's uh, really interesting. Let's let's dive right into that because what I find interesting about that, okay, so the premise is um, you can acquire an interest in multiple companies where you can have more influence. That implies that you're going to be active in some way. Shape. No, 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 no. Uh, it doesn't. It implies that I have the option to be active. Don't have to be active. Okay, so... Broadly speaking, how many companies are in your portfolio that you have an interest in at the moment? Yeah, so I have 35 different categories that I'm involved in. And then I partner because I generally believe that it's best to partner the things that you're not super passionate about or that you don't want to do. And um, in each of those, I have there, there are multiple companies. If I was guessing around those categories, I'd say there's probably maybe 110, 120 companies uh, all total. Okay, that's really interesting because one of the questions that I personally wanted to ask you that I wanted to, oh, this is this is very self-serving, but it's like, okay, so follow that thread. Okay, so I am also interested in, um, you know, participating in with other companies, providing value where I can provide value uh, in a way that I would then also have an interest in that, in that company. And we can kind of talk about, I want to get into the zero out-of-pocket things a in a little moment. Um, one of the, and this could be a limiting belief, and so maybe you can help me smash this glass ceiling. But I then I start to think, all right, all right, cool. So let's say because I've already got a business, right, and it's, I'm active in it, and I've actually got two. And so then, if I get these little bits of other businesses where I have um, some interest or influence, 
it's going to suddenly become really hard to manage. Like one or two, but then what if what what about ten? Or what about fifty? And then all of a sudden, like how do you tactically and practically actually just manage that portfolio of companies like just even on a base level of how do you spend the time to review the performance or understand what's going on like how do you do that sure it, it doesn't require that much for me and and it it depends on what you're going to do so I, I generally acquire in one of two ways either a straight acquisition where you're generally acquiring a significant portion of the company usually a controlling interest and um, that is I'm going to make the acquisition. I've um, I have spent the money, although it didn't have to come from me to do that. And now I have the interest. I am effectively on the board of that company, although I don't generally sit on boards either. I sit on advisory boards, but I'm effectively on the advisory board of that company. And now it operates and does what it does. And I invested in it because I believe in what it does. And then as an advisor, I can say, you know, hey, Let's have uh, let's have a meeting and let's talk about some things that I think could happen to add value to the company. But that's kind of the end of my role there. There are people who are running those companies and doing the things they do. The other way that I'll do it is through consulting for equity, where I am bringing some value and I'm receiving other than money. I'm receiving my interest in the company for that value. Typically, in those, I'm going to be more of a strategist. And so I'll bring strategic help. I may assist that company in finding personnel in help with its tech stack, you know, in just introductions to other uh, people that will help the business grow. And so I'm having a little bit more active role in the, uh, in the strategy of that company, but in none of those, am I acting as an operator? So it's really no more difficult for me to look at a QuickBooks summary on the QuickBooks app around the different companies that I've got than it is to look at the um, statements and stock quotes that come through on the Quotron if I've got those stocks. So it really doesn't take me that much time to do that. I'm not acting as an operator or as an active consultant though. Like I'm not an ongoing kind of uh, involvement in most of those companies. So how do you, um, okay, let's say you do a consulting for equity deal and part of that arrangement is, hey, I'm going to add some value here and we're going to come to an agreement based around a certain amount of equity, which I will end up owning you know, on, on the provision of that value. Wonderful. How do you stop that being an ongoing obligation? Like how do you, and I'm interested to understand like your rules of engagement with companies as well. So is there, because you strike me as someone who's really consciously designed your life in a way that you get to stay in your zone of joy and genius. And I want to dig into that a little bit as well. And I'm trying to clarify how you put the right constraints in place. So can you help me to understand that? Absolutely. Yeah. So the very first thing is deciding like, what are you doing? So if you're, if you're doing an acquisition and it's a straight acquisition, then there is no ongoing anything that you would be doing. You, you own the company, you have operators, they do what they do. The consulting for equity is uh, you can do a couple of different ways. Um, you can say, I'm going to be a strategic advisor and I have companies like that where I don't have a constraint on the number of hours or anything like that because I feel very comfortable in those deals that the need that they've got for the specific services that we've defined, my deliverables are to assist with business strategy. It's difficult to business strategize 40 hours a week, you know, 2,080 hours a year. Uh, so most of those companies, I'm coming in for an interest in the 10%-ish range, and they're already profitable, and they're looking for somebody to help with business strategy. And I know that they're going to call me typically sporadically when some thing is happening that's an event like an acquisition or an exit, um, or if there is uh, a, a desire to kind of have a meeting about how can we overcome some challenge? There's not a lot of um, time that's required in those companies. And because I've partnered with people in those deals that do the operational side of things, I don't really, I don't really have to do anything. In those deals, uh, the other way to do that, to constrain, is to say, listen, I'm going to provide these deliverables. That's always in there. And I'm going to do it for a period of X time. And at the end of that time, then there is no additional obligation to provide anything. 
right? That's I've effectively earned in. So, you know, that would be an, an easy example would be it's a million dollar company. You want to acquire 10%. You provide effectively 100K worth of your strategic services or whatever it is that you do. At that point, you will have effectively provided value equal to $100,000 divided by a million equals 10% of the company. There would be no need for you to provide more unless you were to get more equity. So that's the other way to define that. Okay. And is part of the benefit of having a larger portfolio of company the pure diversification? Because if you have, for example, you take this strategy and you're going to build a portfolio, but you have a portfolio of three companies, you're probably more, uh, you're inherently going to be more concerned with the objective performance of each of those companies. And so you're probably more likely to be like, right, I want to know what's going on in these businesses versus if you have a hundred, then it's kind of like, well, you know, sometimes they're going to be going good and sometimes they're not going to be going good. And I can stress less, you know, holistically across the board. Is is that a is that a byproduct of the of having a larger strategy, a larger portfolio? Is that part of the strategy of having a larger portfolio? I think it's a byproduct. I, I It's not part of the strategy because my my strategy is I'm just interested in lots and lots of things. And so as those opportunities come up, if it's something that seems like a fit, particularly if it complements now that I have more categories, um, we can acquire things that I know I can plug several of the existing things into to connect and add immediate value at a, at a pretty significant rate. But it, it really just kind of comes down to like the, the growth of the companies and the supervision. I'll, I'll give you an example. So I had, um, I had a gentleman come to me. I saw that he was doing really, really well in, um, in social. He was using ways to drive traffic and sales that we weren't particularly strong in monetizing in that area. And so I just reached out, we, we connected and talked about, you know, I was like, Hey, you're really good with that, but you don't do much of anything with paid. We're pretty good at paid. You know, how about if we, we kind of just share. And so we did two calls where our entire team got on, our entire marketing team got on with his marketing team and they broke down their whole plan. We uh, did the same. Their marketing team got on with our marketing team. We broke down our paid media plan. And then we started talking and that was kind of just an initial, let's get to know each other. And then he said to me, he said, uh, I'm doing really, really well now, but how do I get to be a billionaire? I don't see that this approach that I've got right now has the velocity to get me where I want to get. And I said, well, you would the basically, if, if I look at what you're doing right now to get to where you want to get, you need multiple engines that will propel you there significantly faster. So what if instead of just you, you had 25 views and uh, uh, the way to do that would be to create a media network. And so we talked about that. And then he said, would you help me design that? And, um, and in exchange for that, I'll give you 10% of my company. And I said, that sounds great. So uh, in that case now, his entire marketing team, sales team, executive team, all of that stuff is focused on how, to they, how do they create 25 clones of what he already had. And so building that strategy and the agreements and the structure of that business I laid it all out for him and then he went and found, I guess, about maybe 15 of the people and I, I referred about 10 people into it. And so now we've got 25 companies under that one company deal that we did together, plus his business that he's doing. And those businesses also are acquiring businesses. And so it's very spider webby like that. So just in that one deal, there's 25 companies at the top. And then some of those come because each of those deals is also doing equity deals. So I call those meta deals where it's basically I can get in up the top. Now I've got 10 points of all those 25 and those 25 have several that they're doing. Now the equity we're taking in those companies is significantly more. It's 50% and most of them, but I'm not running any of that. He and his team and his companies are running that. So all I need to know is what's happening in that one company that's running all those other companies. And I'll give you an example. One of the uh, media people in the 25 was a franchise development company. And under that company, we've got 17 companies, right? So now 
think about how that fans out really, really fast. Again, I'm not doing anything in any of the 25. I'm not doing anything in the 17. I will come in if there's a challenge or there's a question or we're doing an exit or acquisition. But other than that, I don't really have anything I have to do. And that's a swath of about 50, 60 companies, right? All told across that one deal. So um, so it's not that hard to monitor and it doesn't take that much time. And I don't have any obligation for ongoing business because I already set up the structure, which was what I got contracted to do. I'm like, here's the plan. Here's the structure. Here's the legal. Here's the overall business model. And let's go. That sounds awesome and exciting and fun. The did it answer your question? It did answer the question. I there's okay. my next question though is actually around the so that sounds fantastic for someone who's in your seat, right? Someone who takes that position, providing you know that level of engagement to get that degree. It sounds fun. Sounds like tremendously enjoyable. Um, my question though is around. So let's talk about like the say the business owner you partnered with. Presumably, in order to or, execute, or let's or let's take your personal selfish okay. question and develop that. Okay, let's Directly. let's do that. Okay, let's do that. Okay, let's okay. do that. All right. So um, I've got, and I mean companies. selfish in the best way. By the way, guys, everybody that's watching or listening. We're, yeah, no, we're no, friends, yeah, so it's, that, it's that wasn't a, that wasn't a you selfish <laughs> question. That was you know, hey, let's let's help you answer the question you actually got. <laughs> Okay, here's all right. Here, let's get to the heart of it. So, um, in order to so let's say uh, I want to grow through acquisitions. Um, so there's two parts: consulting for equity and growing through acquisitions. They're kind of like same sort of genre, um, different uh, different approaches. One yeah, consulting for equity would be one of the many ways to fund an acquisition. Is the way I look at it. It's a it's its own capital, but it's your intellectual or operational capital as opposed to capital capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. With, kind of the way I'm thinking about it is like, so one, our core business, our main business is uh, is called Dashdot. If we wanted to grow Dashdot through acquisitions, we would buy businesses that would be um, adjacent, upstream, downstream, or consolidating more, more of our client base and all of that kind of stuff. Um, consulting for equity could be done in a business that doesn't have a specific um, direct you know, consolidation part of Dashdot, but it could be another business that I have an interest in. So there's sort of two different ways to think about that. But um, there's, a, there's a time piece for me. And I'm wondering, and it's like, Having the time and the bandwidth for me to go and do that. So let's say I wanted to go and acquire ten companies this year um, to grow Dashdot faster. Um, let's say that was the goal. The there's a tremendous amount of time, energy, effort, and focus required to do that. And my concern is that that requires a trade-off between my time, energy, effort, and focus on Dashdot and its um, success and well-being and health and happiness and all of that kind of stuff. Then there's the side effect of, let's say I go and race around and find 10 companies that we want to uh, acquire and roll into Dashdot. Then there's the kind of the, what happens to Dashdot trying to squeeze the integration or all of that kind of stuff. And so how do you take it from that? This concept makes heaps of sense. The execution part of it seems pretty intense. Have you got any guidance or advice on that? I do. And I, I think it's astute to observe that, that that is the case because it does take time and commitment to develop what we call programmatic M&A. Programmatic M&A is not haphazard. We actually have decided consciously that one of our channels for growth will be M&A or mergers and acquisitions or acquisitions in particular. So once you make that decision, to me, it's really no different than saying, hey, we're right now generating clients through Meta. We're on Facebook and um, Instagram but we want more clients and therefore we need to add another marketing channel. The marketing channel we're going to add is what? Oh, I don't know, YouTube or TikTok. Um, now, when you make that decision to do anything other than you're doing right now, you either have to take time that you have personal or time that you are develop devoting currently to other things to have the time to focus on that. So it will require some amount of time to do, but I think anything that you're thinking about doing that's new and different is going to require some time. How much time it's going to require, require being the operative word there, um, it could be three to five hours a week on the low side, or it could be as many as you want to devote to it on the high. But it isn't really from a requirement standard more than about, say, 20 hours a month. 
So that would be a half a week a month that you would be looking to carve out from whatever you're doing now, whether it's personal or business. And if you don't have that time, then you might think, okay, well, I need to I need to look at what I'm doing and say, are the returns from what I'm doing right now in the things that I'm doing uh, so much that I don't want to, to pursue the new activity? Uh, or is there someone else that I can hire a contract with or partner that can do either of two things? Either can they take some of the stuff that I'm already doing off my plate so that I have the time to do this. And that might be as simple as a VA or AI automation or something like that. You know, taking, again, it takes a minute to look at it, but do an audit of, you know, or a time study of what am I spending my time on right now? And am I operating at highest and best use the entire time? Or um, you can go on the other side and say, let me just find somebody that will do the finding for me of these acquisitions. And uh, which is very often what I end up doing for companies, right? It's like, you know, they don't have the time to do that. They don't know how to do it. They want somebody that knows they trust me. So they're like, you know, how about if we work something out and we give you, you know, and again, I take part of both. I take part of the existing company and the ongoing, but, but so yes, you will absolutely have to find that time. So that's thing. Number one is, can I do that within the context though of, Anything you choose to do to grow your company that you're not doing right now will require some time. So assuming that you calculate that and say, one of those solutions is possible. I can either beg, borrow, or steal from the things I'm already doing personally or professionally, or I can go and partner, hire, or contract somebody to help me on the other side. You know, Then you get to, okay, now I've found a company. I'm the dog that chased the car. I caught the car what do I do with it? Do I just bark at it? You know, do I just talk to it? What, what's going to happen next? Well, what we're looking for, and this is something that a lot of people don't consider, is I'm generally looking for a motivated seller. I'm not looking for a person who's decided to sell their company and is in an auction environment with an investment banker or a broker gathering bids to get the maximum price they can get for it. I'm looking for somebody who actually is among maybe the 80 to 90% of people that decided to sell the business, tried it, and then found out that they couldn't, uh, or somebody that's suffering from some accelerated desire to sell, not at market, because there are other reasons that are driving the desire to sell, which would be uh, you know, partnership challenges, location change, shiny object syndrome, uh, too many businesses, and they want to get rid of this one, even though it's profitable because other things are more profitable, not making as much money as they could make, focusing time on this business, so want to go do something else. Uh, any of those kinds of things that cause people to want to sell, then I'm going to say in my program of finding companies to buy, what did I want to solve for? Because the companies that I'm going to be pursuing that that are owned currently by those motivated sellers have to solve an existing problem in my company right now. And so if it's as simple as, I would like to have, I would like to double the size of my business, then I'm going to look for direct competitors, people selling the same or similar product in the same or similar market, right? But if I need other things, if I need leads or teams or uh, more profitability or higher average order value, I'm going to be looking for other different kinds of companies. So now I've, I've got the company identified. And let's say that I wanted the easiest thing. I just want to double my business. Well, now I'm looking for companies that are my direct or indirect competitors that have an equal size business to mine and are motivated and are not on the market current to sell. So that's going to be a organized outreach campaign to identify who those players are. They're relatively easy to identify. Uh, you know, simply you can purchase lists, you can go to Zoom Info, you can go to Data Axle, you can go to Hoover's. There's lots of places to find the lists of your competitors. And then you put together a campaign to reach out to them. Now, typically you don't do that. You goose doesn't do that, right? You have a VA or an assistant or an intern or somebody that's, that's assigned the task of doing that outreach. They do that outreach. They receive the responses. They have the initial data gathering conversation. And then you start having conversations. You find somebody that says, I'm kind of interested in this and, and yeah, I, I'm motivated. You work out then through a conversation with them, the process of acquiring their company. Well, now integration, integration is never as easy as people think it is. 
but you've identified that that company has the characteristics that you want for your company. So your team is then going to be charged with how do we integrate this company? What does post-integration look like and how do we get there? And then that's a plan that requires, again, some time. But think about that. The time that you're spending to do the outreach, to have the consideration of the plan, to do the negotiation, to close the deal, and then to bring that company in compared to the time it would otherwise take you to linearly grow your company to two times the size it is right now, the time to do the acquisition is going to be a fraction of the time that it would take to do it organically. And so that's, to me, the, the trade-off that we're looking at is we're going to have to hustle right now and we're going to have to find some, you know, some time to make this happen. But my goodness, at the end of the day, the day that transaction closes, we literally doubled our business. And that was not going to happen for five years organically at a 20% growth rate, right? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, a couple of follow-up questions uh, to that. One is around the actual acquisition of the customers, right? Because the customers have a choice. You don't, you, they're not assets. You can maybe get their contact details as part of the deal, but they can choose not to do business with the uh, the the acquiring company, like when it's all said and done. So, um, uh, the the other part of it is that I'm thinking through if the if a business doesn't have a clear path for growth, and they're going, well, we can grow by like five to twenty percent a year, or we can double through acquisitions. That seems to make sense, right? If you've already got a path, like we're already growing at a substantial clip you know we could probably triple or more in the next um we we have control over our growth at the moment put it that way right and so we can we can grow significantly is it is it more of a case of like it's probably more appropriate when you don't already have some kind of rocket ship underneath you is that because it kind of seems like could accidentally overcook it a little bit yeah it has to do with your operational capacity certainly your team but they're not mutually exclusive and think about Google was growing like crazy and then they bought the AdWords company, right? It wasn't called AdWords. I forget what the name of it was, but they didn't have that capacity. It wasn't a core strength, but it was clearly a major monetization play that changed their business forever. They chose rather than to develop outside their core competency, despite the fact that people were searching like crazy and their business was growing to acquire a company that could really add tremendous value to them. Facebook was growing like crazy, you know, has kind of grown like crazy since it started. And yet they chose to buy Instagram. They chose to buy WhatsApp, right? At a billion dollars a pop. Google also chose to buy YouTube, right? Again, not a core capacity. Now the second largest search engine. So if you just like, those are two companies that I think are great examples because they were absolute rocket ships going in far faster than two or three times a year. But they did say along the way, you know what? We're not going to get where we want to get as fast if we try to do this. We're not going to get into this other market if we try to do this ourselves. We're not going to be able to develop this technology. Google, interestingly enough, tried to with Google Video to develop the video technology and compete head-to-head with YouTube, but they didn't have the ability to do it even with all their resources. So they just bought it, right? So I think that that if you think that I can still grow my business at 3x, but what if I go exponential and I grow at 3x myself through organic or through whatever the current plan is, but then I multiply that by a, a force multiplier of three again, and now I'm exponentially greater, right? I'm not 3x, I'm three squared. So I'm going to grow nine times as fast instead of three times as fast. I like nine better than three. Does it take more effort and resources to do it? Absolutely. Uh, But if I can do both, I'm going to do both. But what if I can't? What if I can only do the 3X or I can add the 3X? You know, then I'm going to basically say, well, if I can only do one, then which one is the easiest and most efficient and adds the most potential future value? And then that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, it's super interesting. Yeah, because I think it's the resource. I think it's the resource component and resource being time, money, money, team, you know, all of the different factors that make it capability. I think it's the resource thing, which I find interesting, you know, as a, 
as a company, we have been um, self-funded, so we haven't taken outside investment. We've, you know, it, and you know, growth eats profits is a pretty common uh, common saying. And so, like, it's it's a the the dichotomy that I'm looking at is the like it's that it's that trade off between the excitement of like, yeah, we could go do this thing, and it's like, how much more, you know, rattling and shaking can this rocket ship <laughs> kind of take? Uh, in a context, so I think that's, and it could just be a limiting belief factor that I've got on it that I'm not thinking about it correctly, and so I kind of well, want to think that. I, I think it is a limiting belief because other people do it, and so we know that it's possible and that it's even probable because lots of people are doing it right now. So how are they doing it? Um, growth eats profits if growth is not controlled, uh, but if a profitable company works with another profitable company or works with a company that to acquire a company that is going to enhance profits because there are additional products or services that can be offered. There's additional IP that can be deployed. There's additional team that can, or resources or aqua hires that can take the capacity that needs to happen. Or there's additional lead flow that comes in that can light on fire the proven product market fit things that we've already got. Then it's kind of hard for profit to get eaten because we've built in a pre-profitable acquisition and we've got a plan as to how the acquisition is going to enhance the profits we've already got. So I think it's scary, no question. And I think that's what you've got is like, man, I'm busy. I'm, I'm already fully, fully busy. And it might not be the time for you to acquire because you might need to say, how can I free up capacity for me to pursue this new growth channel. And that would be very smart to think about. I do believe that it is possible for you to free up time to pursue the additional growth channel. And I think that you would absolutely have fun with it and it would absolutely benefit the company because you're not going to buy anything that's not profitable. It's not like you're buying a startup or you're making an investment in some new expansion that you don't know if it's going to work or not. You're going in buying into momentum momentum and profit. It's kind of hard to lose if you're going into already proven profit and momentum and to use a very overword, overused corporate word, true synergy so that the companies are actually going to come together and be more than the sum of the parts. Yeah, it's super interesting. The, the thing that I'm thinking about, so two two thoughts kind of sprang out of the back of that. Number one, you said controlled growth. That's really interesting as well because we have a team that are focused on uh, growth, right? And uh, Left unconstrained, they would just be like, foot to the floor, let's go, <laughs> which is fun. But then that also, but if we put a constraint on that and said, okay, we might be able to grow by whatever X percent a month, but let's let's target this. We're just going to do this much growth every month. So it's consistent. Um, we can probably do more than that, but that's cool. Let's keep some headroom. Let's create some uh, emotional space around that as well, as much as anything else. And just go, okay, let's just do that. And if we can do more, that's cool, but let's just constrain it a little bit. And then also creating a team. So building a specific team for it, like having someone for, for the acquisition side, by the way. So um, so having someone who can kind of champion that and lead that. And I think that kind of gets into the, the uh, a point that you often talk about is like obviously not being the operator. You talk about the O-Myth uh, as well. And if you think about the acquisition, and maybe it is structurally, and maybe you can maybe shed some light on that. Kind of the way I'm thinking about it is you might create a separate department slash a separate business unit slash potentially a separate um, business entity, which is focused on the specific um, growth through acquisition CFE type um, type stuff. Uh, and then you would have someone who would be focused on operating that company. And therefore, my role, for example, would be to provide strategic advisory to that company and by proxy strategic advisory to the acquisition. So create that, find a champion, an operator or whatever, help them to have the resources they need to build the team that is required for them to develop the deal flow that can then feed into the other companies. Am I thinking about that in the right way? Am I feel like I'm stuck? Yeah, I think you are. And, and keep in mind, there's a lot of M&A professionals who are currently unemployed because we're in a downturn economy where private equity is, is constricting a bit. Companies are rethinking their teams and things like that. And so to find somebody that's got skills in the area of doing acquisitions, at least traditionally, um, shouldn't be that hard. Although 
you know, I don't think you need somebody like that, but, but like if you wanted to, to hire an M&A team, that is definitely something you could do. I just think that, that if you go with a, what would have to be true for me to be able to do this? And the answer is I would need to have 10 more hours a week and my team would have to be, uh, twice as efficient, or these KPIs would have to look like that. Then you say, okay, um, what's going to get me to that place as fast as possible. And then you put that into place and then you do it. And, and I wouldn't suggest that you, you say, let me take my hands off the wheel of this business. That's going great and develop and growing at three X to do this other thing and just assume that everything's going to go fine. And it's going to continue to do that because it probably won't, but you might want to be thinking about how constrained am I, if I don't find a way to make that happen. Because if because at some point I'm already full and it's probably now. And so if I'm already operating at twenty percent over my ideal capacity, then I've got the what would be true is I've got to find capacity. So how do I do that? What would have to be true for me to be able to get somebody to do the things that I'm doing to get me back to seventy percent? And then put that in place as step one. And then step two is go and start a programmatic M&A. Mm. I want to ask a, a tactical question about um, uh, acquiring competitors. If you're acquiring a larger competitor, there's a question of kind of like, well, why would they want to sell to a smaller uh, company? Kind of seems a little... Uh, and then if you're acquiring a smaller competitor, it's kind of like, well, we're already bigger than them. Why wouldn't we just keep being bigger and better than them? <laughs> you know, like, is that... How would you rationalize that? You're equal size, you're like, cool, double the business. Bigger or smaller, it seems like there's an asymmetry. Usually uh, you're not acquiring. I mean, you could acquire smaller just to say, I'm effectively, my customer acquisition cost to acquire a customer is $100 a customer. So every time I acquire a customer, it costs me $100. If I can acquire 1,000 customers from a smaller competitor for $100,000 or less, then I have effectively instantly added a thousand customers at the same or lower acquisition cost as I could have done otherwise. So that's one way to look at that and say, you know, if I if I can add a thousand customers, then that's going to happen tomorrow. Versus I'm adding two hundred customers a month, and it's going to take me five months to get there. So I can make this acquisition and get exactly where I would be five months from now at or below the acquisition cost that I would otherwise have to spend to acquire those customers. Plus they've got a growth engine to be adding additional customers every single month. Why wouldn't I do that if it was just straight across the board, apples for apples? If on the other hand, as is often the case, you could say, you know what? We've done a customer analysis and our best customers are the customers that have this profile. This company specializes in that or we want to add customers that have this profile and they've got those people. Then it's a strategic acquisition to fill a gap or to accelerate your entry into a different demo or psychographic market, right? That makes sense. For the larger, it's just a question of, can we do it, right? If, if we can afford it, then why would somebody sell? Well, they'll sell because they're going to get the price that they want. And if they're motivated and they hadn't been able to find a buyer otherwise, and you can negotiate the price that works for you, then nobody cares, right? Mm. Okay, that's a good point. How do you, in an, in an unsophisticated market, when people, like it's all well and good to rock up to someone and say, hey, you want a million dollars for your business, great, I've got a million dollars cash, let's do a deal. That's pretty, you know, obvious. But in an unsophisticated market where business owners just might not be, you know, you're just not that sophisticated in, in that context, uh, how would you approach starting to, how would you navigate the conversation to sort of a no money? What is a no money out of pocket deal for the benefit of people um, that, are, that are listening to this? I'm, I'm, I'm self-absorbed in, a, in this conversation, but then how do you, how do you navigate the unsophisticated kind of seller? Well, it's, it's a great question and, it, and it's an important distinction, a no money out of pocket deal versus a no money down deal. No money down is generally hard to come by any company that's worthwhile because you're really generally going to be expected by a seller to have some amount that's going to come to them in the form of cash in the beginning. So no money out of pocket is we're going to look to the assets of the company and other resources to fund what is needed for the seller 
as opposed to our own pocket. So in traditional investment banking circles, that would be a leverage buyout. A leverage buyout is we leverage by getting debt on collateralizable assets of the company to receive the amount of money we're going to pay the seller to sell us the company. So the seller has $500,000 worth of assets or five mil, let's say $5 million worth of assets. Um, we can borrow from lenders uh, 80% of that. So we can get $4 million to pay the seller. The purchase price is three and a half million. We use three and a half million cash right off the bat, pay the seller off and have 500,000 in working capital left over to work with. Um, the more creative ways of doing that are looking at all of the other places that you might be able to get uh, the funds to do that. That could be as simple as going to uh, a bank and borrowing it, although I don't like that because then you typically have to personally guarantee it. Um, it could be going to mezzanine debt lenders. It could be going to raise money from friends and family on uh, notes or on uh, equity basis. It could be looking to the people that are in the company already to come up with the money to pay the down payment and allow them the opportunity to buy in, have skin in the game. We call that integrator equity. It could be seller financing. It could be earnouts. It could be any of those kinds of things that we're going to look at. And there's a couple hundred of those that we've identified. And so we just stack those on top of each other like Lego bricks until we go and bridge the gap between what the seller wants and what we want to pay, which is, you know, out of our pocket, zero. Mm. One of the most interesting characteristics around uh, about you, Roland, is your incessant ability to think differently and think bigger. And I'm wondering what advice you might have for people to think differently and think bigger. Because you, because you always seem to see solutions to all the problems. You seem to be able to think continuously at an exponential. Um, um, in my yeah, worldview, I think the number one thing that holds most people back is their ability to think bigger than what they are. Agree. How, what advice have you got on that and any any kind of tips? I, I mean, for me, I'm constantly amazed at how small I'm thinking and I try to think big. So uh, so I'm, I'm aware that I'm always thinking too small. Uh, and so I just try to look at examples of what people have accomplished and say, there's no reason I can't do it if they can do it. And so you know, I, I can look at wealth and say, you know, look at Elon Musk. And uh, I think the LVMH guy might be the rich, richest guy in the world right now. But um, it's there's no reason that there's there's not anything different other than thought processes, habits, um, opportunities that we create and that we're blessed with that lead those people to the great things they've accomplished. You know, if Google and Facebook and Uber and um Airbnb and Apple can grow at the rates they've grown at, you know, well, there's no reason that I can't be part of a business that does that same thing, you know, and, and world changing inventions are happening all the time. So it keeps you nimble in saying, I've got to be careful, number one, to believe that it's possible. And I can believe it's possible if I can see someone else has done it. And there's plenty of examples of people that have done anything that you want to do at a way, way faster velocity than you are going at right now. So now I know that's possible. Now I can chastise myself a little bit for, you know, what the heck? Get off the stick, right? And then um, and then I have to be careful not to pigeonhole myself into something that is going to preclude me from having the ability to do that. And so that's, to me, that's the big thing that we fall into probably even more than being able to think big is that we self-select into constrained opportunities that will preclude us from being able to do the thing that's going to get us where we want to get faster. So if you choose to be a school teacher and you do that because your mom was a school teacher and your dad was a school teacher and your great grandmother was a school teacher and you like kids and want to educate, then that's a decision and it might be fulfilling on a personal level, but if your goal is to make a certain amount of money or build a certain amount of net worth, that's definitely going to constrain you to what teachers traditionally receive if you go the traditional path. So then you can say, okay, well, what would have to be true as a teacher? I love the what would have to be true. 
what would have to be true as a teacher for me to become a billionaire? Uh, and then you can say, well, I'm going to have to come up with different ways of educating. I'm going to have to create some sort of different program. What are the vehicles for doing that? Maybe software, definitely software. I see people that are billionaires who are software. I think there's a huge market for education. It's a multi-billion dollar market. Software valuations work. I need to be in an educational software company where I can be a teacher delivering my wares, my teaching through a different methodology that allows me to reach my goal. And if you can do that, then you can opt out of the rut that most people fall into of, I want to be a fitness instructor. So I have to, I have to be a personal fitness instructor working at a gym for somebody else. And maybe you can make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year doing that. But if I create a whole program or a product or an infomercial or like, like, it's like, how do I get into the channels of distribution with the product market fit of a product or service that will allow me to achieve whatever my goal is and stay out of the places that are going to stop me from being able to do that. That's going to cause you to constantly innovate, to constantly seek a different path and to not get stuck, which is what most people do. And how have you applied this thinking to other areas of your life? Because like, you know, building wealth, making money, fast growth, business, like that's one thing. Uh, but knowing at least a little bit about you, I know that you have other aspects of your life, which are uh, enjoyable to you as well. So how have you applied this thinking to optimizing the other parts of your life? And then how do you make sure that you don't get stuck in the, in or dragged into, should I say, the, um, the, the doing? How do you put those barriers up a little bit? Yeah. So I always look for who, who is where I want to be and that's who I want to get close to. Um, so who's my model? Um, is it possible to get mentorship with them? The mentorship and the model are very, very important. And then what's the community I can get around? So that mentorship model mastermind that you know from, uh, from some of our masterminds, that's for me because that's personally what I use to do everything. So if I want to learn how to play tropical house music, then I'm going to go find a way to get next to Kaigo, who is a tropical house guy, and he's really good at it and have him look at my music, right? And and I was able to do that. I If I want to- Can I, can I just jump in uh, there? Is that why you bought the 808? Yeah, uh, no. Uh, well, I've, I've played music out in clubs from 15 to 42. So, you know, I, uh, I, I bought the 808 because I'm so mad at myself for selling the one I sold back when they were a few hundred dollars that uh, now you have to pay thousands. But I, I really like the old stuff and I like the old gear. So, um, but but yes, it also ties into playing music, right? But um, but that's it to me. It's you know, if you want to, um, if you want to be, if if I want to go into, I'm trying to think outside of business, but so much of my life is business because I find business fun. Um, but whatever it is that I want to do or get good at, I want to find the model that worked. If I want to learn a language, I have the option of going to a class to do it, or I have the option of immersing myself in the country. If I'm, if I'm immersed in the country uh, as many times a year as I can, then I'm likely to learn to speak the language a whole lot faster. If I want to cook and I hang out with chefs and I have a private chef come in and I get to watch them and find out how do they do what they do, then I'm going to do that as opposed to watch a video on YouTube or look at a book. Mm. And what advice would you give me or what strategies have you put in place to make sure that you are staying in your zone of joy and genius and not getting dragged into uh, not getting dragged into other areas where you're not like in that kind of state of joy and genius? It's, it's simple awareness. I, I am aware that it is easy to fall in that. And so I am driving all the time the people around me, the teams, the myself to say, what can we do to do this faster? What can we do this to impact more people? What can we do this to make this more profitable? And how are other people doing that? And why are we doing what we're doing? And is it going to get us where we want to get fast enough? It never is, by the way. Um, so so I'm always looking for that next thing. And and. I'm saying, I mean, I'm I, I, like I said, I'm really aware that it's the rut that kills you more than thinking big. It's that, you know, well, I can't do that because it's actually what you and I were just talking about, right? It's, well, I can't do M&A because I'm already full and I don't have any time or team to do that. You know, okay, that's unacceptable because that means I'm stuck. 
So I refuse to accept that limitation. What has to be true for me to find the ability to do that? That's what I'm always, always, always driving at. And it drives people crazy, by the way. Is you, are people around you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was actually just wondering that. I was just wondering that. Because I, look, I, personally, I've found that I actually need, I've actually had to put up um, some distance between myself and the people around me in many ways because I'm just too, I'm trying to push too much. But then, yeah, I'm trying to find, I'm trying, trying to thread that needle at the moment between how do we continue to grow exponentially? How do I make sure I don't blow other people up? But how do I also make sure I don't blow myself up? And then how do I make sure that uh, I'm really starting to find now that kind of joy and genius um, spot where I'm, where there's, you know, we, we, the business has matured to a point now where I get to do the things that I love, not the things that I have to do, which is super fun. Uh, but then, yeah, and and that's a continuing challenge, right? And that, and it's something that it's really kind of the closest people to you need to be thinking like this. And need it, you need to be okay to be yourself around those people. If you do it around the line level employees, you're going to lose them all because they're going to think you're crazy and you're too hard on them. But that's why you have people who you who report to you who deal with those people who are trying to figure out how do I accomplish what I want that this crazy person has told me they want um, and make it happen, but also not cause everybody to abandon ship. How do you? rationalize or what advice would you give to either myself or any other entrepreneurs around getting comfortable with giving up equity because i think a lot of people are like oh my god you know like i could go faster so for example you know you could you can go faster if you could just let go a little bit so maybe you've got a business and you're like i don't want to keep running this business um but i also don't want to just shut it down and also i don't want to sell it but maybe if I just found some people who could love it, care for it, nourish it, nurture it, and make it grow, that would be cool. Would I be comfortable giving up a bunch of equity to do that? Okay, cool. Maybe I give up thirty percent of the company and give it to these other people, and they just go and <laughs> they just go and do it, and I don't have to do it. I think a lot of people have got a mental block around around equity. How how do you how can you rationalize people to get comfortable with that? I think it starts with the languaging. If you're giving up anything, you feel a loss. Um, I think if you make an investment, you don't feel a loss. So if you say, instead of giving up, I'm going to invest 30% of my equity into a team that should return 300% on the investment. And I can look at that because I know my 30% right now is worth a million dollars. And when they hit the KPIs that that are required for them to hit, to be able to vest the equity that I am willing to invest in them then my equity, my 30% will be worth three times more, which means my 70% that I keep will be worth three times more, which means I've got 140% return on the equity that I kept. And does it ever make sense to sell a business or when does it make sense to sell a business? Well, I, I think if you've got, I think it's a return on capital issue. So if you have a business that's making you a million dollars a year right now, and you can sell it for say 10X, you've got $10 million. It would have taken you 10 years to earn that $10 million. If you can reinvest the $10 million and make more than a million dollars a year right off the bat, then you've replaced your income. Plus you have 10, you have an extra, you know, $9 million in assets that you didn't have before or income at least that you didn't have before. And you can use that then to reinvest, especially leveraged into a different investment. So I ran that analysis and said, assume you have a business that's worth 500,000, that's worth um, 7X, it's EBITDA, it's profit. It's currently profiting at $500,000 a year and it, it compounds at 7% and it's always worth 7X. If you hold on to that business for 16 years and then sell it, the combined value of the income that you would receive exclusive of taxes and then the sale at the end of 16 years comes out to be around $23 million. Uh, if instead you were to sell that business, everything else is the same. It's growing at 7%, it's worth 7X, but you sold it in year five in, and then bought another business at a fifth after 21% taxes, which is our typical rate here in, in the in the United States for corporations, um, and you used 50% leverage to buy the new business, 
you would end up with about 75 million. So it's it comes out to like 3.14 times more money for you in the end, straight financial analysis, if you've sold every three to five years and you did that four times over a 16-year period. So the fact that that alone gets you into a whole different category of types of businesses that you can buy, as long as you've got something else that you're going to do and you're not out of ideas or desire to acquire, then really I can't imagine why I would keep it longer than that. Unless I said, this business is a rocket ship. You know, you have a Facebook, a Google and Apple, then, you know, definitely don't sell that. But most of us don't. Most of us don't have that. Yeah. And that's a big, that's a big, that's a big thing. Like most entrepreneurs, they, they all have a belief that they've got the next Google or Apple. But the reality is most people just don't. Right. So, right. Right. Super interesting. Roland, um, I'm mindful of time. Really appreciate all of the, uh, the uh, advice uh, and also for continuously helping me to <laughs> think bigger and, and challenge. Always. Find my edges. Um, you've obviously got a lot of ways that, that you can support people. You've got masterminds. You've got, uh, you've got Epic. You've got all this kind of stuff. If people want to engage with this a bit further, if they want to, if they want to find a way to participate in the things you've got going on, where would you suggest that they go? I would suggest they go to epicnetwork.com, which is the, all of the stuff that we've been talking about today to find out more about that. We've got free challenges that help people along the way with that. We have a podcast also called Business Lunch Podcast I do with Ryan Dice, who you know is my business partner in a lot of things. And um, then on all the socials, I'm forward slash Roland Frazier. And uh, I respond on LinkedIn and Instagram and YouTube directly to all the comments that come there. Awesome. Roland, thank you so much. As always, really appreciate your time. It's been fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks.